This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, the, as uh, Mr. Macro over here and Mr. Boris Becker said, mm. the infamous vodcast from Roland Garros in 2019. Uh, this year, this time, we're going to cover and try to sort of rank the Grand Slam tournaments. And I have a mm. feeling which one comes as number one for I you know. too. But anyway, we're going to get to that. So first I want to ask you about Roland Garros, as we are here. Sometimes the stadium is not full. Sometimes there is hardly a soul in the, in the uh, arena. John, what's your feeling about the French tennis fan not showing up for the whole day sitting in their seat? Well, I've got to just preface by saying that uh, I think the French fan generally loves tennis. So I think we have to do a better, better job of managing expectations and sort of, you know, when you go to a restaurant, they try to make you feel comfortable and make you feel like at home in a way and you feel special. And I think that we have to do that with the fans. The players obviously want to feel it. So whenever you have a match that starts at 11 o'clock, to me that's going to be a problem. You know, very rarely you're going to have a crowd full, so that has to be taken in consideration. I remember the one time that I thought that uh, Sanga was going to get to the finals of the French. He played after the, uh, I, I believe it was Rafa and Novak, played the long match, and then there was a break. And I think it's understandable for the fans that they would need some time to sort of regroup, go to the bathroom, have a drink, get some food. And the players not knowing when the first match is going to end would lead me to believe it would be like, okay, 30, match, 30 minutes after the match ends, that's when the next one will start. That way you give everyone a chance to regroup, and they don't do that. So then there was no energy. I remember in the crowd it was half full, and he lost the first set, ended up losing the match, and he said he was really disappointed that it was that way in the beginning. So I think that, that everyone has to work together and make it not feel like, oh, the crowd doesn't care because – Actually, I think in a way, French fans care more than most fans that I see in the sport. Boris? Well, a lot has to do with the French culture. Uh, I find the, um, the court this year side as busier than the last couple of years. Every morning there's a long queue when you come into Roland Garros. It's just the French like to have their lunch. <laughs> and that takes a little bit. It doesn't matter who plays. So I think we have to take that into consideration. You, know, you can't change the French culture, the French mentality. I'm with you, John, the ones to hear. They're probably the loudest fans in the world, not always for the right or the wrong, but they're just loud. They enjoy to, to um, you know, express themselves. But I think uh, tennis at around noon is difficult 
in France because of the culture and the way they they go about their days. There's another there's another solution, which they do in a lot of award ceremonies like the Academy Awards, and you understand that that is a long show and that at some point, even the big stars or whoever they may be in the first few rows leave to go, maybe get a drink, go to the bathroom, get something to eat. They have seat fillers. Now, to me, you have a lot of people that can't afford maybe to come to an event like this that would love the opportunity, even if it were only for a half hour, an hour, while yeah. the other, some other people were having lunch, to fill the seats and, and, and have this opportunity to see the sport of tennis up close. Mm. I think that would be sort of a no-brainer. It would be mm. like a win-win. I mean, it would take some organization, but I'm sure there'd be hundreds, if not thousands of people like they do to some extent at Wimbledon, queuing for the opportunity to come later in the day. I mean, think about it. On the, the main courts, you have four matches being played. Usually it's going to be at least two men's matches where best of five. So if you figure you, you're not going to assume any fan alive, no matter how big a tennis fan is going to sit there from 11 o'clock in the morning to 9 o'clock at night. So you have to sort of massage the situation mm -hmm. a little bit and uh, understand that there's going to be – times where some people are going to come and go but you can make up for that i think and 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 filling you know seat fillers would be a great idea but, i think but they have to deal with that problem because it just doesn't look good no the upper tiers are yeah. usually yeah. pretty full yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just the bottom the lunch goers like you're yeah. saying that yeah. choose to not go but i think we have to deal with the situation Absolutely. it's not going to change next year you're not yeah. going to change the french mentality so you have to find a solution now already who are you going to put in between 11 and 2 o'clock? By 2.30 around, it's full, and then by 5, it's packed. Great. But players are starting at 11. You know, you have great matches now on, on, on Philippe Chatrier, so you have to find a solution, as John said, to fill the seats with people that love to be here, but they never have a chance to get to see this match on center court. And, and other shows, like TV shows, live shows where they talk shows, for example, even. This is not just those. But they have comedians that come out before and they sort of warm up the crowd. Yep. And so there's a way to do even something like that in between the matches. You could entertain them. If they want to stay and watch a little music, they could do that. There's all types of mm -hmm. things that could be done. You could have a couple juniors come on the court. Now, they, they, it would be understandable if a lot of people left then. But just a way to sort of interact more, more and, and, and fill some time when necessary and then build up the energy for the crowd because to me that's part of why i believe there should be no warm-up because i think it'd be more exciting for tennis uh if you, they came out and they introduced the players they said here's bars becker you know he's won wimbledon three times in the u.s open two times in australia here's mats vlander he's won seven grand slams three french opens three australians at a u.s open and and the, and build it up and so there'd be excitement mm. and then they cost toss the coin and then they play you've got two fighters going on in a ring yeah trying to knock each other's heads off they don't sit there and warm up for five minutes i mean why that why is it that we need to do that i just think that would be an example where people would be more energized so obviously then now we're on to a bit of innovation no tiebreaker at Roland Garros you want to see them knock their heads head off each other with no tiebreaker that sometimes takes too long I know you're for the tiebreaker 
Why are they waiting here? What do you think? Just to be different? Yeah. Well, we keep talking about the French mentality and culture there a little bit. Um, I think it was a good decision by Wimbledon, for example, because the matches just got too long. And a big server, I don't want to mention, is not too much, but you know, he's the reason why this, this rightfully, this, this change of of scoring at the end of the fifth set uh, uh, was implemented this year. The question is when, is it six all, is it nine all, is it 12 all? Now, we haven't seen that many super long matches going into late in the fifth set at the French. Last night we saw one with Herbert and Per, which I thought was the best match of the French Open so far. It was 11-9, so that was acceptable. But I think they have to find a rule here as well. And if it's six all, why not play tiebreaker? I mean, they already played for four hours at least, and you know, it's they still have to play more matches than there's the next day. So six all, I think a tiebreaker, the fifth set is a fair solution for everybody. I, I don't know why it's not the same at all the tournaments. Why it's twelve all at Wimbledon? And should it be the same? You reckon? I think it should be the same. Yeah. Six all, especially here, which I think you certainly could argue is more physical mm. than any of the other three. So why? Is it that here there's no tiebreaker? Because so. here there's no roof. Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't go hand in hand, does yeah, it? I, 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 I'm not sure that that follows. But, but, no, uh, well, they're just uh, later, late bloomers here at the Roland Garros, it seems. They're the last facility to upgrade their facilities. I mean, they still don't have a roof. so. Well, it's, politics gets in the way of a lot of this stuff. And um, tradition is good in certain ways, but I think that we've all realized that being able to have a roof or two, I mean, all three of them have two now. You know, I was just over at Wimbledon, they just have their second roof ready on court one. So the idea that they don't have one here at all, now I know that things are different when it rains, it dries, you can get on the court, but to me, uh, it, it's, it's always been a no-brainer. I always believed that there actually should have been a major somewhere indoors. Mm. I think that would have been interesting. So, uh, but but not. that was the <laughs> that was the pipe dream. And think about the crowd. We spoke about that in the afternoon. They come. Think about a night session at the French Open in Chartier. I mean, packed. Think of you know Songa or Morfis or you know some of these French guys come out at eight o'clock. You 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 know would be the match of the day. So I think it it would work in so many ways. And then you know you still have to fill up the stands at eleven twelve o'clock in the morning. Mm. Maybe start later. You see, you could have less matches. You, you could just have two or three, and then they're going to have a night session. They've already said that next year they're going to have night sessions. Uh, so that's going to add some electricity. And um, the French like to have a good time, as they do in New York, and uh, maybe more so than the other ones. But they're going to be ready to go. They're going to you know, be at the end of a, uh, a work day, maybe have a couple drinks, have some food. They're going to be ready <laughs> to get behind these players. So it's a long time coming, but you'll see that they're going to love it. Um, I'm interested in, in uh, knowing, because in the past when we played in the 80s, well, you guys played, uh, Boris played some in the 90s. Did you play in the 90s? I played a, a couple bit? years. I, I, a couple I, I, years. I, I, Sorry, yeah. a couple years. Uh, it was obvious that the, the, the players that won here at Roland Garros were... It was a defensive game. Uh, it was a matter of keeping the ball in play, and if you had a chance, you might do something. And obviously, Wimbledon, with serving and volleying, was by far the most aggressive tactical. Um, how, what do we think today when you compare Roland Garros to, let's say, Wimbledon? Because here you have to construct points and be very aggressive because of the way that uh, the guys and the girls are hitting the ball. Whereas at Wimbledon, 
Yes, you have to be aggressive, but it's not as, as natural. You're not coming forwards as much. There's a lot of slice backhands going on at Wimbledon from the baseline these days. The mindset is completely turned, or has it not? Well, I think that uh, to me, it, they play. They don't change their styles uh, yeah, um, from grass to clay and even hard courts. And to is me, that bad? Well, I think it'd be more interesting to see more variety where they had to switch gears. Uh, I think that uh, players had to think on their feet more and adjust. And, and, and I think it's more interesting to see players having to deal with more adversity. So um, uh, I, I think that the best players obviously have been able to add more to the game, but it's not as if Federer plays completely different or Nadal or any of the top players suddenly decide they're serving in volleying. Mm. I think Roger made the biggest change when they, and was the most interesting to me when they quickened the courts a few years ago in Australia, which allowed him to sort of take balls earlier, be more aggressive and feel more confident he could come in more. So I think down the road, it's, to me personally, I, it, it's like watching a righty and lefty play. Just mm. it's sort of you're like, oh, OK, they they're automatically different. And then if you see a two hander versus a one hander and then if you see a, net, a, a guy that's going to be more aggressive as opposed to someone who's just staying back and counter punching, that seems to be the most interesting to me. But you don't the way the game set up with the court surfaces they're too similar to have that happen. Mm. I, I, I think the game has changed. I think in a way it got more one-dimensional. Everybody, especially from the young players, plays kind of similar. They have good ground strokes, they're physically strong, they get into those rallies and then whoever overhits or overruns the other guy would win. It's not necessarily who outplays the other guy. And, and they use the same style on all surfaces. That's why on grass, you see a lot of baseliners, you know, successful, and, and you see on clay. Um, yes, the all-defensive game has changed on clay, but still, the guy that makes less mistakes usually wins at Roland Garros. So Wimbledon is still the opposite, but I would see, you know, and it would be maybe speed up their evolution a little bit from some of these 19, 20-year-olds that they add more elegant elements to your game, become more than just a one-dimensional a type of player yeah. because you see Rogers change over the years Rafa is playing more aggressive Novak is playing different than he's played five years ago and that's the reason they're still on top of the game and I think there should be a lesson for all the, the young superstars out there that in order to want to be a complete player and to want to win a Grand Slam you got to add more elements to your game yeah. I think CC Pass has done that better than any player because he's been uh, unafraid yeah. he's, he's switched okay. gears he's moved forward come into net a lot more and I that's part of why I think he's had the success he's had so far part of why he's so appealing I mean he's got every, all the qualities he's yeah. got the looks the hair the uh, the style of play even the name of fine the city pass the I name mean, is yeah. a good name it's all good <laughs> uh, just for uh, there might be some younger viewers or listeners just to to clarify something here so uh, and I'm gonna answer it first I come from the French Open uh, Roland Garros, and I haven't served and volleyed maybe more than once in 50 serves. And I go to Wimbledon, and I serve and volley, volley 95% of the time on my first serve and 80% of the time on my second serve. John, what's your ratio of serving and volleying while you play Roland Garros compared to then going onto the grass just a week later at Queens, for example? Uh, I would say that the first serve would be similar. You know, if I hit a good first serve, it's coming in. Second, I probably went in uh, maybe 
less than half the time, you know, maybe a third of the time. At Roland Garros. At Roland Garros. Yeah. At Wimbledon, the way the courts used to be, virtually all the time, first and second serve. U.S. Open a little different, maybe, um, I would say, almost all the time on the first, but maybe two-thirds of the time on mm. the second, yeah. you know, depending on the speed of the court. But uh, it's changed quite a bit. It would be far tougher proposition with the way players return now. Sure. I mean, I, I remember your match in 1984, and, and you know, I have to bring oh, it up. Bring no, it but, up. but that was the best time you've played here. And I remember you coming to the net pretty much on every serve. I mean, you were chipping and charging because nobody played like that on clay. And I think, you know, question mark Roger Federer. He plays a style nobody plays here on clay. Nobody likes to play. The quick points, the, the change of rhythm. And that's one of the reasons he's still so successful because he plays, in a way, an old-school type of game. My, I was in the middle between the two of you. I would come more to the net than you, Matt, but probably less than you, John. And, and um, on the surfaces, it was similar. Mm. Um. Nick Curious has been a topic, but not really him personally. Players not playing all four slams. How do we feel about that? Nick Curious has his reasons for not playing. Roger Federer had his reasons maybe for not playing, but is it okay to miss a slam? I mean, you're on tour, you're playing, you're ranked highly, you're on the ATP tour, you're supporting the game. The game has given you, I think, way more than you can ever give back to the game. Can we pick and choose which slam we play, depending on if they're competitive enough to win it? Well, I mean, uh, this is uh, something that's been talked about since I first came up. You know, who has control over player schedules? Who knows best for the player what he needs to do to max out and peak? And the way it used to be, it was, it was more difficult uh, to play the French and Wimbledon successfully, given there was only two weeks. Yeah. For an American uh, coming over to Europe, I mean, these are great cities, Rome, Madrid, Barcelona. However, the amount of time spent away from your home in the States, that wears on you. You, you can't be away all the time. So you'd have to make a decision and, and compromise. And, you know, ultimately, I'm a sort of free trader in a way. To me, it's, it, it should be like the player should be able to make their schedule. And if they decide they're for whatever reason they're not going to be able to go and give their best or perform at their best, or they prefer to try to be ready for a Wimbledon as opposed to a French Open, I think they should be given that right. Mm -hmm. I don't think they should automatically be you know that they sh there should be a penalty that you should be automatically given like a zero pointer as if you lost first round. I think that that's too harsh. I get your side of it where. You know, they try to make a schedule. You needed to support uh, certain events or they want you to. You know, what is the minimum amount um, of events that a player should play a year? I mean, that obviously depends on the player. Mm, yep. How big a family does it have? How old is that person? Can they – how taxing is that, is that on them physically? So all these things come into play. And, and why is it that certain tournaments you have to play and other ones you don't have to play? I mean, it's, you know, so you get into the politics again. Uh, I think um, it's the exceptions that players don't want to play the Grand Slams. There are reasons for us. Back in our days, most of us hardly played the Australian Open because it was in December, it was the end of the year, people were tired, so they weren't even going. So again, going with the statistics, who won most slams, 
you know, 70s and 80s, a lot of people don't even play the Australian Open. Only, say, in the last 20 years, it became such a great tournament and put at the beginning of the year, that's why everybody wanted to play. But let's talk about the names. Curious doesn't play here because he thinks Roland Garros sucks. Anderson doesn't play here because he's still a bit injured and I'm sure he's warming up for the grass as we speak. John Isner is not playing here because I think he's injured. He got a stress fracture. So there are reasons and, and I'm I'm with John on that. They are you know it's it's their choice, it's their career and, and their responsibility ultimately. I think it in my opinion would be foolish not to play because you get a lot of prize money here and, and points and it's just a great way to improve your tennis skills but ultimately it's for the individual to decide what's best for him because when he's 35 nobody's going to ask him you should have done that you should have done this you know the career is over and you have to do the most of it roger didn't play for four years yeah um, he chose, chose after having come back a couple years not to play the clay court season because he's felt his best opportunity was to prepare for the Wimbledon. Everyone understood that. Mm -hmm. Sure. You can't criticize that, right? I mean, you'd want him to play. He's of course. the greatest, right? Yeah. But you understood it. Now everyone said, oh, this is great. He's decided to play. And obviously, you can see the crowds. It, it, there, there's an energy and, and there's a boost to the tournament because he's playing. And, and ultimately, he's been in... Uh, unbelievably amazing for the game he he's he's tried to support all different levels of tournaments you know more so than probably any other player and in, been involved in the politics there's only so much you know a single person can take and it you know there's a lot of things going on that factor into this um boris mentioned australia i mean it's a crapshoot to come in the beginning of the year in a way and and have to go look at the players do a lot of them go two to four weeks before the tournament. So they have to uh, to be in Australia for an extended period of time. Now, there's a lot of – it's a great place to be, but, you know, the commitment year after year, I don't think you should be able to criticize the players just because they may decide one time. Kyrgios may not play here because he just doesn't think he's going to win here much. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the real reason he's not playing. Uh, there were times in my career, do I wish I had – played Australia more? Yes. Do I wish I had prepared better for the French? Yes. Uh, when you're making your own decisions, sometimes you don't make the right ones, and then other times it feels overwhelming anyway. Yeah, no, no. I mean, times have changed so much as well, so we can't really compare to what we did compared to somebody like Roger Federer, who's got his own foundation. He's building schools in Africa. So I think players today, they're building up these responsibilities that go outside of themselves, making decisions just because they don't want it. Because if you are relying on people sort of buying your gear and your hats and whatever, and that's the, the income that you're building schools for, and suddenly you decide not to go you also have to think of the other side because you choose to be in that situation and suddenly somebody else is suffering for your decisions. But it's a different, it's completely different from well, when you put we... A even a lot more pressure on it. Well, I'm just saying it's a lot different. I remember you and I, John, we played an exhibition tour in, uh, in America and uh, we dropped, the, the plane dropped you off in Long Island and you said, you waved and you said bye and then you popped your head back in and said, and by the way, I'm taking six months off. 
I'm like, oh, okay, see you in six months. There wasn't anyone sort of saying, oh, John, you can't do that, or that's, that's not good for the game, or you shouldn't do it. There's nobody around you. You didn't hear like the conversations with my parents. <laughs> but you what? Didn't, you didn't have a You're whole... You're taking six months <laughs> off to have a kid? Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> but they have a team around them. It's a, it's a different times for sure. I'm so... That, that, again, on to maybe not Roger's case at all, but in terms of physical um, fatigue, is clay courts the, the worst surface for physical fatigue. Uh, in, in a way, it is because the matches are longer. We always say it's so grueling to play on clay, and I'm like, well, not really. To me, hard courts was more grueling because there was more stop and start, and it was worse for your joints. What's your take on, on physically, Boris? Well, I, I, let's see where are the clay court tournaments these days. Uh, Rome is usually sunny, and then it's played pretty quick. Madrid, altitude. It's very quick. I mean, we, John, we both would have loved to play in Madrid. Yeah. It's a volley and the kick. Um, Barcelona, Monte Carlo, I call that the typical clay courts grinding, you know, two, three hours every match. But even the French, on a sunny day, you know, with, with the harder surface, I find it's pretty quick. So I think altogether the game has sped up on clay, where on grass it got a lot slower. Now I think that's good. Uh, because it's a bit more exciting if there's more speed and more action. Are you, on, can on I just, are you saying that every time we played here at the French yeah, Open, it was, it was raining? It was raining and slow. It was impossible. <laughs> right now to, it's, to, it's, to it's cold, yeah. you know, and so it's slower, but yeah. it's less taxing yeah. in a way if it's 90 degrees. Yeah. So it's, it's unpredictable. But I bet you if you looked, studied and went back 30, 40 years, the length of a rally, I'm almost positive it would be a whole lot shorter now. You know, they're going for so much more so quickly. More points end on the first couple shots, even on clay, mm. way more than they used to. Yeah. So I don't think yeah. it – I mean, while it's still extremely physical because you need explosion because the first step's so important, I don't think you have – as maybe that's why they think that you don't have to play a tiebreaker. Yeah. I don't, I don't well, know. But ju just take the example of Nadal, how his game has evolved. When he won, he was a 19-year-old, and he hardly he came to the net to shake hands. I yep. mean, he kicked his first serve in, stepped around, and, and here we go with the forehand. Now I see Nadal as an aggressive baseliner, you know, coming to the net. The serve has improved, even speeding up his points. He's winning here in an hour and 35, 40 minutes. Yeah, the score was, was easy. But back in the day, one, two, and three lasted him two and a half hours because of the structure of the ball. So even the greatest of them all on clay is speeding up his game because that's a sign of the time. Uh, another sign of the time is the facilities have improved so much over the years. What do we think? Are they, first of all, are they competing with one another, these Grand oh, Slams, yeah. for yeah. big time? Yeah. <laughs> and have they, have they sort of leveled out the playing field or are getting close to it now with Roland Garros improving the, the Philippe Chatrier, putting roofs on there? Uh, and then, of course, Australian Open has taken. Is it more even now between the four than, let's say, in the 80s, where I have a feeling you guys would say uh, Wimbledon was maybe number one. You would most probably be up in the air with the US Open Wimbledon. Well, but I but think today, I, yeah. are they more even today than, I, well, than I, ever before? I, I would say they're more even than ever before. I think Australia made a lot of renovations and changes sooner out of necessity because it just wasn't happening for yeah. them. You know, they weren't getting all the players, which was a great move. Moving away from where they used to play at Kuyang yeah. and yeah. grass to the new facility, which is they've turned into a whole entertainment center. It's not even tennis. And the French always has this great tradition was a and will always be this tremendous event. But for someone in the States, it's not as important as Wimbledon, which is sort of, 
Augusta, you know, the masters of golf or it's far away, unbelievable place. And me being from New York, the U.S. Open, and I, I mean, I'm biased, but I think it's the best city in the world. <laughs> and um, so well, only a New Yorker can say New York, that. <laughs> and, and, and there's something incredible, the energy there. So I think the other ones have worked hard to, to catch up and they're closer. But it's hard for me to think that Wimbledon, the Open, mm. Uh, they're just something about they, they, they've always had an edge in, in my book. But I think it all started with Australia. I think they changed the rule book. They wanted to become important. They, would, they wanted to matter. And they were the first one with the mm -hmm. roof. Oh. And, and they were the first one with, with you know, spacious facilities for players, coaches, and everybody else to the point where it's probably the most popular Grand Slam of all of four is everybody's looking to come to Melbourne beginning of the year because of you know, infrastructure and, and the facilities and, and the way they have to included the night session. You know, in New York had it for us, but with the, with the roof there, I mean, it's, it's a great match. You know, 8 o'clock on, on, on Rod Laver, it's just a match you, you want to go to and, and see. And I think because of that, everybody else stepped up on the plate. Wimbledon was the second one with the roof. You know, that took a long time. And then in New York, which I thought was an impossible scenario, building on, on Louis Armstrong a roof. I mean, it's the biggest court in the world. I don't know how they've done it. So a night session mm. in New York is magic. Mm. I mean, that's why you want to play tennis. Mm. And now the French have to follow. Yes, I, I respect their culture and the mentality and the facilities are great. I think they've done a great job improving everything, but now they need the goddamn roof. <laughs> uh, guys, uh, thank you. I'm going to ask you one single thing because I, I've got uh, a, a couple of French Opens to spare. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't need. I just need you one. Can give me one. And I, I do, would you give? If I give you a French Open, would you? Slide me one of your Wimbledon titles. I would quickly. I would, would you do that? We would do that. Here we go. I'll take. I'll take one of each. One of each. Thank you, guys. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.